Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 2. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for your constant care, your undying devotion, your faithfulness, the truth of your word, the reality of your steadfast loving kindness toward us. Help us that we would revel in that. Help us as we worship you in the word that we would humble ourselves before you, allowing your spirit and your word to teach us. Do your work, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you remember the account of the Tower of Babel? We've got a, a group of people from you know, all of mankind. They cooperated, they coordinated their efforts to build this tower that would reach the heavens. Now, how they did this, I really don't know. Uh, there, so far as I know, there was no power equipment, so they weren't using uh, forklifts and cranes or helicopters to bring the, the bricks up or whatever they were using, stones up, to, to construct this thing. I don't know, did they use a system of pulleys? Probably, something along those lines. And maybe some immense scaffoldings they built so they could keep bringing these uh, materials up to make this, this structure. One thing we do know is that this structure was, was huge. It was a huge structure. Picture, if you would, at the very bottom of this structure, you. And not just as a bystander, but as that upon which this structure rested. Imagine that structure being built on your shoulders, kind of like that mythical figure Atlas, who they say the, the world rested on his shoulders. Picture this structure pressing down upon you. And we're, we're just envisioning it from a parabolic standpoint uh, and, and looking at how the, the, the structure demonstrated the best of man's efforts to build something to reach the heavens. And very much like that, human effort in our, our workings of the law has this sense of one brick going up, and every brick that goes up makes the structure that much more difficult, that much heavier, pressing down upon us. One of the things that we learn about the law is that it is... It is not satisfied by our keeping it. The pressure that the law brings doesn't lessen as we obey it. You could obey the law for 20 years, and the law the very next day expects obedience the very next day. The record doesn't matter. Obedience now and always. The law is impersonal, and it does not give attaboys. When we think about the works of the law, and that is strict obedience to the revelation of God, strict obedience to the laws of God, we recognize that no matter how long we would keep that process of law keeping up, we would never be able to make the law demands diminish. It's a rather daunting thought, isn't it? One of the realities that we see is that the law is actually far more difficult to keep than any of us would ever even envision. We can see a little glimpse of it in Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler. You'll remember the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? 
And Jesus presses on this question a little bit, and he says, if you would enter life, if you would have eternal life, keep the commandments. Good answer. The rich young ruler is a little curious, and he says, which ones? Jesus answers, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the rich young ruler thinks, I got it, all right, don't kill anybody, don't, don't have any sexual relations outside of marriage, okay, I got it, don't steal, don't lie, honor my mom and dad, I got it, love my neighbor, all right, that's reasonable. And he says, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus says, Here's, this is the great thing about Jesus. Well, other than the fact that he's God <laughs> and perfect and all-knowing. Aside from that, what's great is when he answers a question or deals with a question or deals with someone's circumstance, he knows how to get to the heart of the real issue. So Jesus presses on one of those commands that he had already talked about. You know, that command was, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus presses on that one command a little bit, bringing that command to its end, end degree, end result. And Jesus says, if you would be perfect, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. You know what Jesus just did? He said, you're saying that you love your neighbor as yourself. Here's how that works out in the, the fullest extent. Give your neighbor your very last bean. Give your neighbor your very last scrap of bread. If it comes down to you and him, who's going to be hungry? You love your neighbor as yourself? Well, sell it all and give it to him because he's just as important as you are. Jesus really brings it to that final degree. When the young man had heard this, he went away determined to sell all that he had and give to the poor. No, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He wasn't willing to go to the nth degree. He thought he had kept all the commandments. But keeping the commandments impacts us to the, the very last ounce of our strength. Jesus simply brought that one commandment to its final conclusion. In other words, our conception of keeping the law fully is severely lacking. The law's demands are far more intense than we understand. So, extrapolate the entirety of the law. We just, he just extrapolated one extrapolate the entirety of the law to its final conclusion, and I have a question for you. How much sin debt are you in? That's one element of many commands. Now, at the time, we're talking about 619 commands of the Mosaic law. Now we're in the, the, the New Covenant, and there are 1,050 laws in the New Testament. So add all that together and extrapolate all of those out and see how we're doing our sin debt is great, it's immense, it is difficult. Add to this problem that we have what we learn from James. In James 2.10, the Bible says this, 
For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become what? You only said one of the words, most of you. Accountable for what? All. You're in sin debt for all of it. I'm in sin debt for all of it. So I ask, are you being crushed under the weight of the demands of the law? Crushed under the pressure of a law system that never has its demands satisfied. Listen to these refreshing words from Paul. He says in Romans 10, 4, for Christ is the, what? End of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That doesn't mean, and we're going to talk about this briefly later, it doesn't mean that the law has no impact in my life. It's not saying that. What it says is, for Christ is the end of the law to attain righteousness. To obtain righteousness. I cannot claim righteousness simply by my adherence to the law because I will fail and I will, <coughs> excuse me, I will have a great sin debt. The reality is Christ brings us to the end of all of that and our standing before God is based upon him. Similarly, <coughs> excuse me, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 and following, but the fruit of the spirit is love Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such, there is no what? There's no law? Why? Well, we'll talk about that some more later as well. There's a reason why there's no law to those that are filled or controlled by the Spirit. Now, I want to look at two verses or three verses in the book of Galatians, and it will set us up nicely for our study this morning. Take a look at Galatians chapter 2 and verse 21. <coughs> Excuse me. Galatians 2.21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Look at chapter 3 and verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Jesus is the curse for us. He became the curse for us. He dealt with the curse that we have. Chapter 3 and verse 21 now. Chapter 3 and verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given, for if a law could have been given, we could read it, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. The law, folks, was never intended to produce righteousness. The law was not intended to produce righteousness or justification. It cannot provide justification. So the question should be asked, what provides justification? We're going to talk about justification. What is Justification. If justification were a person, and justification as that person were to speak, he would say to you, or she would say to you, not guilty, not condemned, or stated maybe in the positive, righteous, or free, or perfect. 
That's what justification would say to you if it were speaking to you and saying you are justified. The, the guilt of sin, the condemnation against sin is removed. Perfect righteousness, perfect holiness, perfect truth is yours. That's what justification would say if it were speaking to you as a justified person. In Galatians 2, our text this morning is, is verses 15 through 21. 15 through 21 we're picking up, as we've been, on Paul's defense of his ministry and the gospel that he preached, which was a gospel of grace. There was an attack against his message of the gospel of grace. And by way of defending that message, he said, I've received it by revelation, chapter 1. It has changed my life, chapter 1. Chapter 2, I didn't, or excuse me, chapter 1, I didn't confer with anyone because I received it by, from Jesus. Chapter 2, I did bring it to those who seemed to be authorities, and they told me, that is the same message, go and preach, you go to the Gentiles, we'll go to the circumcised, everything will be great, so it was confirmed. And then he gives this illustration of someone violating the gospel that he preached, and that is Peter Cephas, one of those pillars of the church. And, and Peter, you'll remember, learned from Christ that all foods were fine, and eating with Gentiles is fine. All that ceremonial law is not going to make anyone righteous or acceptable to God. So Peter learned this, and so he went to the Gentiles, and he would have table fellowship with the Gentiles, and he would, he would commune with the Gentiles. And then some renowned religious people came, and when they did, Peter hightailed it out of that table fellowship with Gentiles because of the pressure that he felt. He didn't like the peer pressure. And so he, he violated the very gospel that he received, the very gospel that he was supposed to be preaching. He, he violated it. Paul confronts him to the face because he was to be blamed. Paul then starts to talk to Peter. Listen, if, if you as a Jew live like a Gentile, like you should, that because those ceremonial laws don't make you acceptable to God and don't please God. It's not anything that makes you righteous. If you live like a Gentile, why are you acting like the Gentile should act like a Jew and live like a Jew? What's going on? And now from that argumentation, he goes on in verse 15, and he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I want for us to talk in just these few minutes that we have left together about 
the removal of the crushing demands of the law. And the removal of those crushing demands is by what we call justification. This morning, as we look at this text from verses 15 through 21, we'll notice justification in two aspects of our lives. You and I can be justified for eternity. That's the first aspect. Justification that leads to eternal life. There's a second area of justification that this text calls for, and that is we can be justified for life. We can be justified for life. Now, those two sound very similar. One is eternity. Okay, my standing with God is right. I'm eternally his. I, I have a right standing with God. The, the guilt of the law, the guilt of my debt, the condemnation for my, for my guilt, it's all gone forever. I'll be with Christ forever. There's also a way in which our day-to-day -day life is impacted by this concept of justification. Justification for my day-to-day -day life. Not just for that day that I stand before Jesus at the judgment seat. Justification for today. And this text gives us both of those aspects. So first of all, you can be justified for eternity, verses 15 and 16. He starts by saying that we, Jews, were born in a privileged relationship with the law. They knew it was from God. Gentiles were not born with that instruction, but that instruction or that law was imprinted upon their conscience. We see that in Romans chapter 2. So he says in verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So we, we had a, a direct understanding. We were instructed in, in, in how the law relates to us and its importance. The Gentiles didn't have that. However, as he says in Romans 2, they do have it written on their hearts and their conscience. Verse 16, Paul three times declares how justification comes. He, he wants to make sure we get it. But he does it in three different ways to give us three different sorts of ideas. First of all, he's going to give us the general statement at the beginning of the verse. He says, yet we know that a person, any person, a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So the very first way is a very general statement. This is the general truth. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Then he moves on to a very specific statement about Jews specifically. And he says, so we also, just like every other person, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. So there's the, the general of, of every person, and then there's the specific, we also, Peter, we also, the rest of the Jews that were drawn away in this hypocrisy, we also, Jewish people, specifically uh, recognize that the works of the law do not bring forth justification, only faith in Christ. Thirdly, he makes a universal statement, universal, and he concludes this verse by saying, because by the works of the law, no one, no one will be justified. So he goes from general to specific to universal. This applies to everyone. So the general truth, specifically the Jews that were in the targets of that conversation, and now the, the universal truth, no one, no flesh, no person ever stands, stands in God's sight just by their own efforts, ever. What exactly does produce justification? Well, he says it three times, faith 
in Christ. That's it. Justification, which is the removal of my sin, the removal of the debt of my sin, the removal of the guilt of my sin, the removal of the condemnation of my sin, and the addition to my account, my record, the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's justification. And it comes by faith in Christ and by faith in Christ alone. Why is it that this is a, a, a general, specific, and universal truth? Why is it? Well, in Romans 3.10, the Bible says this, None, none is righteous. No, not one. In Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So everyone sins, everyone is guilty, no one is without guilt, and that guilt and that sin result in spiritual eternal death, which is where the fun and the reality and the joy and the enthusiasm of justification comes into view. Take a look with me at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 gives among the clearest definitions and pictures of justification. The justification that Galatians 2 is talking about. Philippians 3 and verse 9. The Bible says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Can you get a clearer picture? When I bring my own righteousness to the table, that's what Paul refers to in the verse, verses previous as dung. My righteousness is counted as useless, good for nothing. The righteousness that comes from God that depends on faith, that's the righteousness that makes me accepted in God's sight. So faith in Christ removes guilt and condemnation. With this removal, justification removes law-keeping. Listen carefully. Justification removes law-keeping as a means of salvation and acceptance with God. Law-keeping is removed as a means of salvation and acceptance with God. Jesus fulfilled the law in our place. So we know this. This is justification by faith. It's, it's, been, it's been heralded since Jesus and before. It's been more and more accurately communicated through the years. It was really rescued during the Reformation days under people like Martin Luther and then others of the reformers who, who brought forth the, the understanding that, that there's nothing else that makes us pleasing to God but Christ. Now what about our day-to-day -day life? What place does the law have in the believer's life? What place is it? Does it have a place in the believer's life? So now, secondly, back in Galatians 2, as we head back there, you can be justified for life, meaning for daily life. Justified in your daily life. The gospel of God's salvation does not just apply to our future position with Christ. It applies to our daily position with Christ. And so here Paul talks in verses 17 through 19 
And this is where we get that idea of this, this structure, this structure that we kind of place on top of ourselves and it, and it bears down and it weighs down and it presses down. He says in verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Picture again, if you would, the structure that you have placed on your shoulders with every attempt to reach toward the heavens with your good deeds, you add a brick, add a brick, and it keeps crushing down on you. Now, we're not talking about justification for eternal life. Now we're talking about, well, you know, I know what the Bible says, and I must do it. That's true, right? The demands of the word are not there for nothing. They're there for something. But with every human effort, I, I add one brick to this that it pushes down. Then you come to the place where you realize that Jesus canceled the debt. You realize that Jesus has taken the structure that's weighing down on you and obliterated it. He, he, he took the structure of the law from pressing down on you. It's been torn down. Now in our daily walk, if we think that we maintain our relationship with God and Christ through the means of human works or law keeping, we're going to begin to build again this structure. That's what he's saying in verse 18. Didn't Christ remove the, the debt of this from my shoulders? Uh, if, if it's already been torn down and I start to go back to this thing, aren't I just rebuilding that structure again and it's pressing down with its demands that are impersonal, that, that they don't care what you did yesterday, the demand is there right now and it presses down. And if I, if I live my life and my, my understanding of my acceptance with God based upon law keeping, what I'm doing is I'm rebuilding that structure that Jesus tore down. So there's a natural question that comes from that. As people of influence came, Peter felt the disapproval. He felt this pressing down. He caved under the pressure. Paul is describing here the real problem of the caving. You're building something that's been torn down. So as part of the argument, Paul asks a loaded question in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? What is he saying? Here's my preaching. It's justification by faith. It's a right standing with God by faith in Christ. If in our endeavor to be justified by Christ alone and not by the works of the law, as he's just stated in verse 16, are we saying that Christ is endorsing or promoting sin? This is the question. So we ask this question, did Jesus have anything to say about whether the keeping of the law makes one holy or not? Did he have anything to say about this? And I tell you, he, he does. For one... He is the author of the whole Bible. So anything that's said in there comes from Jesus. But if you're one of those that needs the red letters of the, of the Gospels, then we can look at that as well. I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 7. Excuse me, Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Does Jesus have anything to say about law-keeping as a means of holiness? He speaks directly 
to this issue. Mark 7, beginning in verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person, out of a person, are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about this parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Listen carefully to what Mark's commentary, under the influence of the Spirit, is. Thus he declared all foods clean. In other words, he removed that ceremonial food-oriented element, which includes the table fellowship with those that would eat those things. Thus he declared all foods clean. Verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. You know what Jesus did? He just removed all the ceremonial stuff that, that people were clinging to, that Peter was pressed on that the Judaizers of, of the Galatian church, those that were coming in and, and trying to influence the church to say, hey, listen, you need to keep the law. Titus should be circumcised. Peter should not eat with Gentiles and eat what Gentiles eat. He should not eat with the Gentiles as a Gentile. None of that should take place because you are violating the law. And so Paul says, wait a second. Wait a second. So you're telling me that my endeavor to be justified by Christ alone makes me, when I follow the words of Christ, violate the law, what you're saying is that Jesus promotes sin. Talk, talk about an argument. That's loaded, friends. Paul comes to the point where he says, if you have a question about justification by faith, talk to Jesus. Talk to Jesus. Jesus said the same thing that I'm preaching. Jesus is saying the same thing. He said it then, and he's saying it now by his spirit in accordance with the word that a man is not justified before, during, or after in any way justified before God because of the works of the law. Not by following any ceremonial standard, not by wearing a suit on Sunday, not by listening to the, the right kind of music, not watching the wrong kind of movie. This does not justify you. That doesn't mean none of it matters, but it does not justify you. It does not give you a place with God that is at right standing or perfect. Head back, please, to Galatians 2. He, he's working his way through this, and, and he's taking it from the concept of a soteriological or salvation-oriented argument to a day-to-day -day practice argument. Because the problem that was coming to, to, to the forefront was a day-to-day -day living issue. And so he says, if I then rebuild what's been torn down through Christ, I prove myself to be a transgressor, for through the law I died to the law that I might, what? Live to God. Paul turns his attention to living for God. He tells us that it is not through law keeping, but through faith. Just like he said over and over. 
In verse 20 now, what we'll notice is, in our union with Christ, our sin debt has been paid. We have been crucified with Christ. Our sin debt has been satisfied. So the life I now live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith. Look at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. There's the payment for my sin. There's the payment. It's been, it's been settled. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Living by faith, according to verse 20, excuse me, verse 21, is an evidence of God's grace. Living by faith is an evidence of God's grace. To live some other way is then a denial of God's grace. And the word he uses here is, I do not nullify. You could say, I do not neglect. You could say, I do not frustrate. You could say, I do not set aside the grace of God. God's grace enables us to live the life that he has called us to. See, justification that, that deals with my past sin, justification that, that makes my record uh, perfect for eternity, this is good news. That's the greatest news we could have. So we have this perfect eternal standing with God. If we then try to live our lives in a way that indicates that that doesn't matter for today, what we're doing is we're going back to an inferior and an unsatisfying and an unfruitful method of life. And what Paul tells us here is, I live by faith in Christ, and if I live any other way, I'm nullifying the grace of God. To live in some other way is to neglect God's grace. If you are a believer, you have been crucified with Christ. That's true. If you're a believer, because of your union with Christ, when you became one with him, you've been crucified with Christ. That is a statement of fact. You are declared not guilty, not condemned, and righteous. And this is why our daily walk is to be carried on in faith, not in law-keeping. Are there laws that apply to the Christian life? Are there? Would it be appropriate for a believer to murder someone? Would it be okay for a believer to be a drunkard, a glutton, a child abuser, a cheat, lazy, a thief? You see, the removal of the law as a means of how to please God is not the same as the removal of any kind of law in any of its applications. It's not that. that is, that's foolhardy and ungodly and unbiblical. It's not what we're saying. Never forget this. If I could drive this point into our minds to understand this, never forget what Romans 8 is talking about. Head, head over there with me, Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, we want to read verses 1 through 4. Again, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. In verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have union with him, so there's no condemnation. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God 
has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Now verse 4, in order that. In order that. That's a purpose phrase. Why did he do this? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, what's it say? In us, who walk not according to the flesh, but how do we walk? Now, when we say according to the Spirit, are we talking about being filled with the Spirit? Yes. When we walk filled with the Spirit, when the Spirit is guiding our steps, when we're controlled by the Spirit, guess what happens? The law is fulfilled. Not the ceremonial law that's been wiped away because it doesn't edify and it doesn't draw us near to God. It doesn't give us the distinctions that it once did. Not the ceremonial law, but how about all the other commandments that God has given us about not murdering and not committing adultery? How about not lying and cheating and stealing? Those things. How does that take place? How do, how do I be the person that's not controlled by my anger? How does that take place? Well, I, I learn these techniques and I punch a wall when I'm really upset. I didn't punch the guy. I punch the wall. The wall, I can fix that. I scream into a pillow. And if I scream loud enough, I release all these endorphins and I feel much better about life because the pillow took the brunt of it. At least I didn't yell at the person. That how I fix it? No, that's not how I fix it. None of that. No. No, the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love and joy peace and long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith and meekness and temperance. Listen to what it says now. Against such there is no law. Why? Because you don't need one. You don't need a law to control you when the Spirit is. The Spirit is God. He knows what's right and wrong. So we're not saying when we say the, the law has been removed and it's not crushing down on us, and, and all, it's not saying that we don't do any of it. The Spirit does it in our lives. If you don't see the fulfillment of truth in your life, I can tell you one thing for sure. You're not walking in the Spirit. You can't claim to be walking in the Spirit and do that which is contrary to the Word of God. It's impossible. So if you're walking contrary to the Word of God, you're in the flesh. If the Word of God is coming to fruition in your life, the Spirit's doing it, not you. And you're not doing it because you learned the law. And because you became a really good law keeper. The law just presses down on us and crushes us and makes us feel useless. You know it. You might not admit it, but you know how rotten you are when you try to do stuff and you fail time and again and you feel like a, you feel bad. But when the Spirit's controlling us, that which is true, that which is right, that which is holy, takes place. So we're not saying by these texts that, that the law has no place in our lives. We're saying that the Spirit does this. I asked you a question. It's the title of our, of our conversation and our discussion this morning. Are you crushed? Are you being crushed? Can you feel the pressure of the law weighing down on you. In Christ, the weight of the law has been removed. You and I, 
can have freedom from this bondage through Christ. Not just for our eternal standing, but for our today standing. Today. The challenge we face, as in every other area of our lives, is we, we deceive ourselves into thinking we know how to do things that we can't do. And I just want to remind you, when Jesus applied the law to the rich young ruler, he brought it to a place that he could not do. He couldn't do. It's impossible. When we look at the law and its demands, we need to recognize that every one of them, undoable by this guy. But through the Spirit, the real demonstration of what the, the truth of God's word is will come to pass. And so my, my job, like in every other message that I preach, my job and your job is this. Surrender your will. Surrender your will. And in the process of that, justification for life, justification for eternity by trusting Christ because Christ is enough. He satisfies the demands of the law. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in prayer and we recognize our own frailties. We recognize our own failures. We come before you and we ask you to help us to yield our heart and mind to you. That the demonstration of your righteousness would be available for others to see as we live by faith and as the life of Christ is demonstrated in us. We pray that others would see his glory, his grace, his truth, that they might turn to him for life eternal. Help us, Father, not to allow the pressures of people's opinion or the pressures of religion around us to dictate how we live, but that we would, we would yield our lives to you and allow your spirit to, to guide our steps. And, and we know that when that is uh, going on, it'll be in accordance with the truth. So help us to know your word. Help us to thirst and hunger after your word that we might see your spirit putting the truth of your word into action in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.